Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Afra Afsharapur, professor of law at UC Davis. We'll be discussing her essay, Bias, Identity, and M&A, which was recently published in the Wisconsin Law Review. I'll link to the essay in the show notes for today's episode. Afra, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. I'm really pleased to be here. Well, it's great to have you here. And I wondered if we could start the conversation a little bit by talking a little bit about why firms decide to engage in mergers and acquisitions or M&A firm decides to buy another company or decides to allow another company to buy it. What's going on there? Is this purely a rational transaction based on a careful financial calculation that the parties make? Uh, Or are there other maybe motivations or drivers that are influencing the decision to engage in M&A or that are influencing some of the behaviors that parties exhibit during the M&A process? I would start with saying there are a lot of rational reasons why firms engage in M&A transactions. And so that might be the ability to gain access to new customers or the ability to gain access to new markets, the ability to enhance what products they offer or to take advantage of a target firm's research and development capabilities. So, and scholars have spent a lot of time to do talking specifically about those sort of rational reasons for M&A transactions. But there's also quite a lot of literature that looks at somewhat rational, but perhaps not value-enhancing reasons for the firm anyway, for M&A transactions. That's really part of what I have focused my scholarship on, both in this paper and in other papers. So taking the example of, for example, bidders and why they uh, engage in M&A transactions. So large publicly traded companies, for example, when they purchase another large publicly traded companies, they might be undertaking that transaction because that is what is best for the firm and its stockholders. But there's also a lot of evidence that suggests that management pursues basically wealth-destroying acquisitions at the expense of shareholders. So some of those reasons are what we in corporate law will refer to sort of classic agency costs issues that come up, right? There are studies that provide evidence that an acquisition, for example, offers significant benefits to the management of the bidder, particularly the CEO. So whether that's in the form of increased compensation or whether it's power or it's prestige. So there are studies that find that acquisitions are associated with large permanent increases in CEO compensation or that CEOs are financially rewarded for acquisitions in the form of new stock options or bonuses and that they're not similarly rewarded for other types of major decisions. So those are some of the of less, I'd say they're still rational from the CEO's perspective, but not maybe what's best for the firm. But there's a whole line of other literature that I talk about in this paper as well that looks at the behavioral biases of management specifically in acquisitions. And so this goes back to 
work that has been done over the past couple of decades on the role of hubris and overconfidence and the part of management in the decision to move forward on a transaction, more ego gratification. You know, sometimes management can be very optimistic about their ability to successfully integrate a target into their business, or they might be influenced to undertake an acquisition or to sell themselves based on what their peers are doing. So there are studies that suggest that management might be making decisions with respect to an M&A transaction, partly because of extensive social ties between the managers of the bidders or the target, or because they really want to keep up with their peers specifically in order to do a transaction. So those are sort of some of the somewhat less rational reasons for why M&A deals might be undertaken. You mentioned potential behavioral biases that might occur, that might pop up in the M&A process. I wonder if we can maybe talk a little bit about the players and, and you focus in this essay on management, but you know, M&A is a transactional process. There is law undergirding it, but it's fundamentally a human process. Could you maybe talk about who some of the players are in an M&A transaction, what their roles are, relatively speaking, in terms of the hierarchy and how they exercise agency in the process? The essay that you have before you that I'm talking about specifically today really focuses on the important role that senior management, particularly the CEO, the CFO, play in the decision to undertake an M&A transaction. But managers don't act in a vacuum with respect to M&A transactions. So I think of M&A really as a transaction that involves a lot of different corporate actors. And I was an M&A lawyer for about seven years, so kind of dealt in the trenches of these types of transactions, right? So that might include, that will include the board of directors because the law provides a role for the board of directors. But in addition to the managers, it involves a myriad of advisors that includes legal advisors, financial advisors, accounting teams, management consulting teams, and so forth. And all of these actors play a significant role in the decision to move forward on an M&A deal. And they're all pretty deeply involved in the decision-making process and planning for a transaction. So because I was limited, it was a, a symposia piece, I was limited on really in terms of the amount of space I had. I really focused on the role of senior managers, particularly the CEO, you know, C-level managers, and how the board interacts with those senior managers. But in a sort of a companion, much larger project that I'm looking at, I then talk specifically about, for example, the role that you know, the very highly compensated financial and legal advisors play in the valuation, negotiation, completion of M&A transactions, and how those advisors interact then with management and the board and how they can both confirm management biases at times and then counteract management biases at times. Zeroing in a little bit on management biases and the drivers of it, are there demographic impacts or are there ways that demographic identity might impact M&A and some of the behavioral biases that managers have? And even more specifically, are there any distinctions maybe we could draw between men and women? I find this, there's a new line of research that I find really fascinating. So as I indicated at the beginning of our conversation, there are 
are a whole large host of papers that look at behavioral biases of CEOs, particularly in M&A decisions. Well, the reality is, right, public companies, CEOs, and whether it's in corporate America or whether it's you know, corporations outside of the United States, are predominantly men. Right. So if you think about um, who are CEOs in corporate America, right, we've got less than about you know, somewhere between five and seven percent of CEOs of Fortune 500 companies have been women. Women make up less than a quarter of C-level executives. If you think about women of color, that's even a, a, a much, much, much smaller number. And in fact, that absence of women in the C-suite is pretty glaring and the absence of women of color in the C-suite is particularly glaring. So the first line of research that looked at behavioral biases really just focused primarily on the lack of sort of the biases of management, but didn't look specifically at whether the managers or men or women sort of made a difference. But more recent studies really hone in on the issue of whether biases are impacted in any way by the sex of the CEO. And in fact, there's an emerging literature in finance and business studies that really looks at gender-based differences in corporate decision-making by executives. And there have been some studies that look at M&A very specifically. So one of the leading studies on this is a 2013 study by Huang and Kistian, and they examined the presence of female executives on the buy side trying to basically determine the effect of the executive gender on acquirer returns for a sample of large publicly listed firms um, in which basically male executives were replaced by female executives. And what they find is that basically male executives undertake more acquisitions, they issue debt more often, and with respect to acquire announcement returns for M&A deals, they find that the returns are higher for deals conducted by female executives relative to the ones conducted by male executives. Um, Similarly, there have been studies that look at the sort of the demographic impact of the board and the extent to which gender diversity on the board impacts then M&A strategies. So there have been studies more generally looking at the issue of monitoring of executive decisions and fundamental transactions. And a number of studies suggest that basically women board members are associated with more vigorous board monitoring of executives. Another study examines the impact of director gender on M&A activity. And that is a 2014 study by Levy Lee and Zhang. And they find a negative association, basically, between the fraction of a firm's women directors and both the number of acquisition bids and the average size of the bid premiums. And more recent 2016 study looks specifically at corporate acquisition intensity and female board representation. And they also find greater female board representation being negatively associated with overall firm acquisitiveness and target acquisition sizes. So these are just, I think, really in some ways the beginning of the research in corporate finance looking specifically at the issue of whether male executives and female executives make decisions differently in M&A transactions. I think they're possible in some ways as we've had a greater number of women 
in those C-level positions and as we have a greater amount of board diversity over the past decade. Acknowledging that this research is in a early stage, as you mentioned, are there ways that this learning might down the road or currently affect how we think about how to hold management accountable or how to monitor members' management? Are there any maybe normative or prescriptive implications we should be thinking about? It's a very good question. I mean, part of what the law has long struggled with is both how to respond to findings in behavioral finance regarding executive decision-making generally, and particularly, we've really struggled with the issue of how to hold officers accountable. So as you well know, there's not a huge amount of case law coming out of the Delaware courts, which are sort of the leading courts in the United States with respect to corporate law issues, really examining fiduciary duty doctrine from the perspective of how do we impose these duties on officers and how do we hold them accountable. So the guidance, the judicial guidance on this has been fairly thin. And I actually think when we're thinking about biases and how identity might interplay with biases, I think the Delaware courts would actually be quite, they're very aware of the structural biases, but they are really reluctant to really make judgments and second-guess officer decisions based on evidence of these types of biases or general papers that might look at sort of the flow of the types of biases that we see in M&A. That doesn't mean, though, that there aren't other ways, right, there are, that there aren't other kinds of prescriptive implications here. So I think, as I said at the beginning, you know, we've got M&A involves a whole host of actors. So making boards or advisors or you know, investors much more aware of the findings on, on behavioral biases and identity and the impact that biases and identity might have on fundamental decisions like M&A transactions might be particularly useful as we're really starting to re-examine quite a bit who are the people in positions of power and how do they make decisions kind of more generally? And you've started to see this on the part of, for example, institutional investors who've been advocating for a much larger number of women in the boardroom and now starting to advocate for more women and more women of color in the C-suite. And so that's sort of, I think, the, the beginning of sort of the changes that we'll see. I don't really think the changes are going to be coming in from the courts. I think the changes are really going to be coming in from the markets. Are there any key takeaways you would like listeners to have from this essay or maybe open questions that you'd like to explore in future work? I think there's a lot more we need to understand about how identity interacts with decision-making, whether it's in the C-suite, whether it is among the advisors in M&A transactions, or whether it's with respect to the board and both the decision-making that it undertakes in deals, as well as the monitoring that it does. And I think the empirical work that has been done thus far has been really, really valuable. But something that I hope that scholars will do more of is really much more of the in-depth qualitative research that can really try to unpack this really complicated relationship between bias and identity. So there are a lot of open questions that I don't address in the paper, but I sort of pose in the paper. And I hope that I can address it in future papers. And I'm 
working on a, a project on women in M&A that sort of touches upon some of these issues, but that I hope other scholars will also work on. So questions about, you know, why are we finding these differences in terms of gender identity and M&A decision-making? Is it because women CEOs make decisions differently in M&A transactions because they view their role differently? Or is it because boards monitor women CEOs differently? Do they exercise oversight differently over a woman CEO? Are other C-suite executives more involved in decision-making? Is there more cognitive conflict when you have women in the C-suite versus when you don't? Um, do the processes differ when you have a board with a critical mass of women uh, with respect to M&A transactions? Do they ask more questions? Do they ask less questions, right? Um, what happens? So what are the differences when you have a group of, in some ways, like outsiders on a board versus a, a board of insiders that know each other? Then, you know, as I said at the beginning, the advisors play such a critical role in M&A, especially large public company M&A, which is really what I'm focusing on in this paper. So is the relationship and the advice of advisors differ in M&A transactions when the CEO is a woman versus when the CEO is a man or when the board has a significant number of women on it versus men? Are there sort of explicit or implicit biases that play a role here in terms of the interaction of advisors when women lead the C-suite? And really trying to understand then, do the norms of behavior change when you have different groups of people in the C-suite and in the boardroom? Our guest today has been Afra F. Sharapur, professor of law at UC Davis. We've discussed her essay, Bias, Identity, and M&A, which was recently published in the Wisconsin Law Review. I'll link to the essay in the show notes for today's episode. Afra, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a big fan. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app. We'll let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.